Thank you, Joe. Thank you, Shingi. And thank you for the two young ladies who prayed and read the scriptures. Now, um, before you think otherwise, my wife's not been hitting me. But my wife doesn't get the blame. Because I went walking with our customers last week and I said, um, I'm, uh, shall I take my walking boots? And Chris, my wife, says, no, don't bother, it's dry. And I was at the top of a very high stile in Tissington and uh, the old man fell down badly. And like all men, I took a lot of persuasion to go to the hospital and I eventually went on Thursday. They were convinced I'd broken a very important bone and after taking five x-rays, they decided I hadn't. Uh, that's the good news. The bad news is they told me I'd got arthritis. <laughs> so I said, oh, I know how that happened, doctor. She said, how? I said, when I was a very young man in a church in Weymouth, I fell off a ladder. And again, I didn't go to the hospital straight away. And they told me I'd get arthritis when I was older. The other good news is, I've got out of washing up. So if you, um, if you want to get out of washing up, fellas... Have a dodgy hand. I'm, I'm, keeping this, I'm keeping this on, Andrew, for a long time because it's excused me for the last few days. I could do, but don't shush. I don't want to hear it. <laughs> right, we begin this week a seven-week series uh, on the last book of the Old Testament, Malachi. Now, uh, in case I'm sure most of you here will know it, some people think that there was no gap between the Old Testament and the New Testament, um, between Malachi and Matthew, but there was in fact a gap of 400 years, and a lot happened in that period. And there is in fact a verse in the, Old, in the New Testament that puts the two parts of the Bible together, and it's in Hebrews. And this is what we read, God spoke to our forefathers through the prophets at many times and in various ways. That was the Old Testament. And then he goes on to say, whoever wrote Hebrews, but in these last times, that's the start of the New Testament, he has spoken to us through his Son. So between Malachi, which we're looking at tonight, and the New Testament, there was a period of 400 years. Now, Andrew, when he wrote to me to tell me that you were doing this series on um, Malachi, he said it's a very challenging book. And you heard it tonight. Uh, just listen to this. Um, they may build, but I will demolish. They will be called the wicked land a people under the wrath of God. Doom and gloom. But there are parts of this Old Testament book that really relate to us in the 21st century. And no more so than these opening verses where the prophet Malachi says to the Israelites... I love you. 
And do we need telling tonight, God loves us? So if you could put up the first slide, Alan, I'd appreciate this. This passage is talking about God's never-ending love for the Israelites, but God's never-ending love for us. The fact of the matter is, when times get rough and God seems a million miles away, we might doubt, even if it's for a moment, that God really does love us. But in that second verse of this book of only four chapters, Malachi says, I have loved you. Now that, of course, is a particular reference to the Israelites, as I'll explain in a moment. But it also has a relevance to us. These were really, really good times for the Israelites. Let me explain why. They had been away in Babylon for 70 years as prisoners. Their capital city, Jerusalem, lay in ruins. It had been ransacked. And everybody but the elderly and uh, the uh, people who couldn't think for themselves had been left behind. Everyone else, the young men, the young women, everybody had been taken away to Babylon for 70 years. It was a desperate state. And then, as happens in all history, uh, one empire, one world empire came to an end and another empire came in, the Persians. And the Persians, I wish it were true today, uh, modern Iran, they looked more favourably on the Jews. And uh, the, the Cyrus, the head of the Persians, said to Nehemiah, you look very, very sad, what's the problem? And he said, well, my city's in ruins. And he allowed him to go back and rebuild the temple. It's called the Second Temple Period. And the temple was rebuilt, and these were really good times for the people of Israel, because thousands went back and thousands were resettled. It was a wonderful time to start all over again. But sadly, um, something else happened after that fresh start. And this is the challenging book of Malachi. In one word, it was compromise. The Israelites began to compromise the standards that God had given them. They were living in the world around them and living according to the standards of the world. And their love for God and their commitment to Him had waned and in its place there was a love for the world. And today we would call that materialism. Uh, J.B. Phillips says the world can squeeze us into its mould. Do you find that challenging? I certainly do. Very challenging. Compromise, of course, is not all bad. Uh, compromise is needed, for instance, to settle a dispute that we may have with someone. You give a little, and I give a little, and we meet in between. Uh, we, we do it all the time, and I wish our politicians would do that. We compromise in marriage if we want a happy marriage. We don't have it all our own way. We have to compromise in church life. 
Uh, the church that my wife and I worship in, uh, they've just had a new building, and some people say it's too dark, but when they put the bigger lights on, people say it's too bright. So somehow we've got to compromise. I don't know how they're going to do that. We compromise in business. We come to a consensus which demands sometimes giving, sometimes taking. But when it comes to the standards of God's word, there never can be compromise. I mean compromise on things that are essentials for all Christians. The fact, for instance, what theologians call the irreducible minimum. The fact that Jesus is God. The fact that he was born of the virgin birth. The fact that he performed miracles. The fact that he died for us on the cross. The fact that he rose from the dead. The fact that he ascended to heaven. The fact that one day, thank God, he's coming back again. And there are other moral issues that we can't compromise on. And those moral standards of God's word are binding on all generations. And in the Old Testament, they're put very succinctly in the Ten Commandments. In the New Testament, they're set out very succinctly in the Sermon on the Mount. Now, obviously, if you go to other parts of the world, in fact, if you go to other parts of the UK, not everyone will believe what you believe on secondary issues of faith. But on the things that are essential, would you not agree, we cannot compromise. It is the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. But the people of Israel did begin to compromise, and this book of Malachi is writing about that. They began to give honour more to man than honour to God. Uh, Let me give you a few examples. They were marrying unbelievers. They started giving less than their best. They cut down on their tithing, which is dealt with in the last book, part of that book. Um, Many of them were unfaithful to their spouses. Uh, They were, let me make it clear, they weren't worshipping other gods. It wasn't heathenism in that sense. It's just that they were compromising on the things that mattered. Um, So, here's Malachi coming along and saying, look, you need to check yourself. You need to repent. Uh, Before we had barcodes and everything, they used to do stock-taking in shops, didn't they? To check how many goods they'd got. They did it once a year. And I think sometimes there's got to be spiritual stock-taking in our lives. We've got to ask ourselves, do I love God as I once loved him? Or has it just become routine? What I find amazing about this book is that the issues that the Israelites struggled with way back 350 years before Christ are exactly the same issues that we are struggling with today in 2018. Uh, People are the same. Their struggles are the same. So... The message of Malachi is to bring us back to the standards of God's word. And he begins, not with doom and gloom, he begins with a glorious and positive message that God loves us. And there are, um, there are four things about God's love that I 
want to bring out of this passage tonight. And the first one um, is this. The first thing Malachi says is his love is unconditional. It continues and it is constant. Uh, Have I not loved you? Some people, including Christians, sadly, think that God only loves them if they are good and they do certain things. We naturally think, all of us at times, that we've got to earn God's love. But I want you to think for a moment of that well-known parable, the parable of the lost son or the prodigal son. Um, The son takes his inheritance, you know the story well, and he goes off into the far country, the Bible says. It's as if he's saying to his father, I wish you were dead. I want my inheritance now. Too bad what you feel. I'm off to enjoy myself, to eat, drink, and be merry. So he, dis- he leaves the father in a very disgraceful way. He's, he's awful to his dad. But does his dad still love him? Absolutely. His dad loved him when he was at home. His dad loved him when he took his inheritance early. His dad loved him when he was in the far country eating pigs well. And his dad loved him when he was on his way home. And his dad loved him when he came home. He said, bring forth the fatted calf. He kept on loving him. His love did not change. And so is God's love to us. Not only Malachi, but another Old Testament prophet, Jeremiah, speaks of God's love. I love this verse. He says, I have loved you with an everlasting love. We use the word love in our society um, for many different things. Uh, For instance... We love our dog. I don't have a dog. I'm not a doggy person. But I've just got back from the States where they had a King Charles Spaniel. And I loved this little dog. And our host, who is a very, very committed Christian, said, uh, please take this in the right way, he said, it's a real shit catcher, this little dog. He says, wherever I go to restaurants, the ladies come and pat it. Uh, But people who are dog lovers, they say, we love our dog. We love a certain kind of fabric. We love ice cream. We love garlic, which certainly wouldn't be true of me. So, the world today often confuses what love really is. Love is confused with lust. So it's very important that the Israelites in Malachi's day fully grasp right at the start how much God really did love them. Despite their being in Babylon, his love for them was pure and it was everlasting. And in terms of our own life now, it means that God loves us. Right? Please understand what I'm saying now. God would like us to come to church every week. But let me tell you, God loves you whether you attend church every single week or twice on Sunday. If 
you only come once a year. God still loves you. God loves you if you fail Him or if you're faithful. God loves you whether you're a good mother or a bad father. He loves you if you cheat. He loves you if you're honest. He loves you if you're an Anglican. He loves you if you're an evangelical. He loves you if you're ex-brethren. He even loves you if you're a Pentecostal like me. He loves you if you're a Roman Catholic. He loves you even if you're a Muslim or a Buddhist, an agnostic or an atheist. God loves you. And if you forget everything else I say tonight, I want you to remember that at the bottom. God's love is not based on who we are. God's love is based on who he is. Hard for a Yorkshireman to get his H's out there. Who God is. Who is God? God is love. That's God's essential nature. And God is saying to the Israelites, I've loved you. And God is saying to us today, I have loved you. And Jeremiah, in, in line with what Malachi is saying here, says, I've loved you with everlasting love and with loving kindness have I drawn you. If you read one of the Psalms, it's Psalm 136. It's got 26 verses. Again and again, in every single verse, it says, for his mercy endures forever. God's dealings with us are full of mercy. Someone has distinguished grace and mercy in this way. Grace is giving us what we don't deserve. Mercy is not giving us what we do deserve. In other words, judgment. And as a, a, a man, Jeremiah went through some awful things, as you might have been through some awful things. A road accident. A horrible operation. Like my sister-in-law dying of cancer at the moment. But God still says, because of the Lord's love for us, we're not consumed. His compassions never fail. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. How many of you have proved that to be true? God was faithful to Israel. God is faithful to us. In our morning service this morning, I'd heard it once before driving to preach in Burton. I heard it on Premier Radio. A piece about God's faithfulness and the person in our church this morning chose it. And forgive my, my having a little romantic moment here. Chris and I instantly held hands. And in fact, my wife and we, well, I was as well, we, we just thought about God's faithfulness and God's love in our life. Israel, how have you loved us? How have you loved us? Just look back on your life and you'll realise how much God really has loved you. So that's the first thing I see in this opening statement, is love is unconditional, it continues and it's constant. And the next thing I see in this passage, this opening passage, is God's actions prove his love to us. Um, they said, the Israelites to Malachi, how have you loved us? How? We've been prisoners in Babylon. 
We've been separated from our families, separated from our homes. Our, our possessions have been stolen. How? How? How have you loved us? But they'd easily forgotten the fact that God had blessed them as a nation. God had taken them from slavery in Egypt through the wilderness of Cana for 40 years, nearly 40 years. God had given them the Ten Commandments. God had given them deliverance over their enemies in Cana. And God had blessed them in a thousand and one ways. Over and over again he showed them how much he loved them. But when trouble came, they forgot it. And they said, how have you loved us? And sadly, sadly, that is often the case with us. When things go wrong, we say, maybe only for a moment, do you really love us? And if you do, why did you allow this to happen? For instance, we could doubt God's love because of health problems. Or we could doubt God's love because others mistreat us. And we need to pray for our MP, by the way, at the moment. All like all politicians, they get a lot of hate mail. Or we could doubt God's love because we don't get what we believe we deserve. Or we doubt God's love, this is a big one, because of the death of a loved one. We say, how? How have you loved us? And at times, because of the life we've lived, we believe that we deserve much better. When my wife got diabetes, the man next door, when I was washing my car one day, said, fancy someone as good as your wife getting diabetes. As if God kind of uh, picked out the good people and stopped them having problems. That's their concept of God's love. Or we might excuse ourselves for some of the things we do and we say everyone's doing it and that's where that word compromise comes in. But in response, God says, while no one deserves my love, I've given it all the same. If the Israelites needed evidence that God had loved them, do we need evidence that God has loved us? All we've got to do if we ever doubt it is look at the cross and look at verses like this. In my favourite book. This is love. Not that we have loved God. But that he loved us. And sent his son. To be the propitiation. For our sins. I read a story the other week. A true story. That I thought was fantastic. Explaining the cross. It was during World War One. An American soldier by the name of Bert Friston was on the front line when his patrol reached a clearing. And unknown to them, there were Germans on the other side of the clearing. And they, they sent two scouts out to find out, you know, where the enemy was. And one of those scouts was Bert. And the moment he and his mate hit the clearing, the Germans opened fire. And Bert lay a crumpled mess on the ground, wounded. Do you know what happened? I can't believe this happened, but it's a true story. One of the German soldiers, risking his own life, 
came out into the clearing, picked up that American soldier, and took him to the safety of his own troops. And during that period, all hostilities stopped. And then the moment that wounded soldier was safe on the other side, and the German had returned to his side, the shooting started. And that for me illustrates so well what God in Christ did for us on the cross, proving his love for us. By nature, we were God, God's enemies. But Christ did the unthinkable because he loved us. Like that soldier, he became one of us. And for our sin, he suffered and died for us. And now, like that soldier, we are rescued. I love that old hymn, Saved by Grace Alone. This is all my plea. Jesus died for all mankind. And Jesus died for me. How have I loved you? I'll show you how I've loved you. He showed it to the people of Malachi's day and it shows us in the cross in today's age. And the third thing I see in this Old Testament passage, and this, I'm sorry, but this is a tough one. A God of love does not love sin, but must judge sin. What on earth has that to do with this passage? Well, the people were in Babylon, and that was a judgment on their sin. And there, there is one of these very, very hard sayings in this passage that you might think is a total contradiction of everything I've said. This is what the statement says. I have loved Jacob, but Esau I have hated. Now, what on earth does that mean? If God is a God of love, how can it be said that he hates someone? But like all these difficult statements in the Bible, you've got to study them in their context to discover what their true meaning is. And in this verse... Malachi the prophet, and also incidentally the Apostle Paul in Romans 9, are using the word Esau not so much as an individual, but to refer to a nation. The Edomites, who were the descendants of Eden. You may remember that Isaac and Rebekah had two sons, Esau and Jacob. And God chose Jacob, whom he later renamed Israel, to be the father of his chosen people. The nation through which the revelation of the gospel would eventually come to the whole world. But Eden, he did not choose. But Eden was blessed in many ways. You've only got to read passages like Genesis 36 to discover, I wish I had, I don't have any grandchildren, but he had lots of grandchildren. He was blessed beyond measure. God had his favour on Eden as well. But he was not the one through which the revelation of the gospel would come. So, considering that context, God loving Jacob and hating Esau has nothing to do with human emotions of love and hate. But it has everything to do with God's choice of a nation in which to bring the revelation of truth to people. You could say God chose Abraham, a nobody in the earth of the Chaldees, and through him, 
His descendants became like the stars of the sky. God blessed him. And in that sense, using the same language, you could say, Abram I've loved, but every other person I've hated. Or as we would more politely say today, every other nation I did not, individual I did not choose. And hundreds of years after both Eden, Esau and Jacob died, uh, the Israelites and the Edomites became bitter enemies. And when Israel were trying to cross the desert to get to the promised land, and they could have done it in less than a year, but because of their sin it took them 39 and a half years. Who hindered them? It was the Edomites. They didn't like God's people. And when they were carried off into Babylon, who hindered them again? Who encouraged the Babylonians who were fierce and cruel? It was the Edomites. They, they were the enemies of Israel. And when we sin, there is always judgment. So you say, well, what has that, that ancient story to do with us today? It has this to do with us. That if we follow God's ways, if we honour Him, He will honour us. But if we choose to go our own way, if we persist in sin, then in some form or another, judgment will come to us. Now, this is the really tough one. And I'm challenged by this, as I'm sure you are. This is... this concept of God's judgment is never an easy thing to come to terms with when we think of it in terms of our loved ones who may not be following the ways of the Lord. Think of my, my father who died at 94. I try to share the gospel with him when he's dying on his hospital bed. One day he opens his eyes and he looks at all his family around his bed and he says, by golly, this doesn't look good. But Dad knew the gospel. And I tried to share the gospel with him. And I hope to God he accepted the gospel in his dying moment. But I can never be certain. Do we believe that God overlooks their sin? Or do we rather accept the truth of Scripture, and it's this verse that I put at the bottom, whoever believes in him is not condemned. But whoever does not believe stands condemned already because they have not believed in the name of God's one and only Son. Let me tell you, I pray to God that I will never ever lose my belief in the gospel and the need there is for everyone, including members of my own family, to believe in the gospel. No matter how much I love my family and I miss my godly mother deeply and my father who notwithstanding his agnosticism was a very, very good father. But no matter how much I love them, no matter how respectable and kind my neighbours are, no matter how satisfied they may seem to be with their life, would you not agree with me they still need Jesus? They still need Jesus. Otherwise, all that we say about sharing our faith with others becomes meaningless. The Israelites knew God's favour when they obeyed him. 
the Edomites knew God's judgment because they disobeyed him. And so is that true today. Let me close with this fourth thing I see in this opening passage. God's love requires our response. This book might seem doom and gloom, but in fact Malachi is saying, look, I've loved you. Won't you respond to that love? Won't you you realize that I've loved you? And if you love me, you will find that things begin to happen that you'd never anticipated. Some people, as you know, have dual citizenship. Uh, In other words, let me give you an example. They have an Irish passport because they were born there, but they also have a British passport. Not all countries allow this, but for reasons that will become clear in a moment, I know that Ireland does. Because I once took a a party to Israel, and travelling with us from our Coventry church was a young lady who lived in Britain, but she'd got an Irish passport because she'd been born there. And it was at the time when the terrorists in Ireland had brought down a jet over the Irish Sea. So, obviously, when she gets to Heathrow Airport, she's immediately suspect. And she didn't help by getting agitated. And forgive our friends at the back, she thought it was because her husband was a black man. It was nothing to do with him being a black man. It was the fact that she'd got an Irish passport and she got agitated. And the more agitated she got, the more suspicious they and she ended up being strict searched and she actually almost lost, left, uh, didn't board the plane because of her attitude. Dual citizenship. There was a problem with it. Let me tell you there is a problem with dual citizenship in terms of spiritual matters. You can't be in the kingdom of God and the kingdom of Satan. You're either in one or the other. You can't be an Edomite and an Israelite. You've got to be one or the other. Either citizens of the kingdom of God or citizens of the world. And that, in keeping with that slide, determines the responses that we have to make. Are we going to say, yes, Lord, you have loved us. I don't always understand everything that happens in my life, but you have loved us. And I'm going to love you. Or are we like, I hope none here, turn our back on it and go cold on spiritual things. So to conclude, the opening verses of Malachi spoke to the Israelites of that day. But they also speak to us now, assuring us that no matter how many times we doubt it, God really does love us. There's an intriguing book with the title The Sacred Diary of Adrian Plass, aged 37 and three quarters. And this is what he says in the book. I became a Christian when I was 16 years of age. But it wasn't until I was 37 that I absorbed an essential truth. God is nice and he really does love me.
Let's allow that truth to burn in our souls. Sadly, deep down, many people, including many Christians, seem to think that God isn't nice, that he doesn't like them very much, and he spends most of his time being cross with them. But nothing could be further than the truth. God has an everlasting love for us. Let's pray together. Lord, all of us have had things in our life that have messed us up for a moment. And maybe just for a moment we thought, do you really love me? Have I messed up? Are you having a go at me, God? But thank you that there's nothing that we can do that can make you love us less or love us more. You love us deeply. You loved us when we were young people. You love us when we're middle age. You love us when we're old and even a bit cranky and grumpy. You love us all the time. Help us to respond to that. And to say whether it's through the voice of our prayers or why the words of Scripture or by the songs that we sing to say, Lord Jesus, we love you too. In Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you.